Hey, everybody. When you hear that great music coming from Chicago, the title and town is Jamie Reske on the lighter side of baseball. And again, even though this time he didn't write the intro, I got to introduce one of my favorite broadcasters, the most smooth, silky voice description of what's going on in baseball, and we miss it. Dwayne Stats. Dwayne, it's been a month. How are you doing? Hey, we're, uh, we're still here. I'm, uh, what is it, Tuesday? And it's the 28th, uh, because my, my wristwatch just told me that. So. Well, it is Tuesday. It is the 28th. And uh, just to tell the listening audience, yesterday, my schedule's so busy that I uh, sent a note to Dwayne thinking that we were doing this yesterday. And by God, I was, uh, I was a day off. And so we were able to free our busy schedules and get together today. And I appreciate it. Way to go, man. Hey, my pleasure. You know, I'm looking for stuff to do. <laughs> there you go. Well, this is it. That's the only reason anybody agrees to come on the lighter side of baseball is because everybody's kind of, A, they're bored, B, they don't know what to do, and C, this usually kills an hour. At least uh, that's what the people tell me. So I have a good time, and uh, hopefully you do too. But uh, how's everything going? It's been about a month. Everybody healthy? We're all healthy. Um you know, grandkids are down the street, so, uh, you know, practicing uh, social distancing. We uh, take a little venture out and take a look at them, and they're doing great. Uh, they're just literally five minutes down the street, so that's great. And um, everybody else is healthy, so we're, we're um, you know, we start to see a few little uh, openings maybe where uh, there's a, a light at the end of this tunnel. We all certainly hope so. Yeah, I agree. And, and uh, you've got, speaking of light, you've got the beach right outside. Last time you were giving a great play-by-play -play on the movement of the clouds, I think a dove showed up. So, I mean, we were pretty optimistic that things were going in the right direction. I'll tell you, we, uh, we do get to take a walk on the beach here. Uh, that's sort of our backyard. So, you know, that's, that's been permitted. So we do see some people and uh, uh, we... <laughs> I guess we could go there because I mentioned it yesterday when I realized that we weren't going to be on. And uh, so, you know, that yesterday was our pre-production meeting. That's what that turned out to be. That, so, I like we, that. Uh, that's a, that's a new, uh, that's a new contribution to the letter side of baseball. I like it. You know, we have, we, we have an only but goodie uh, in the area here that we touched on yesterday. Uh, and, it, you know, I'm, all of our thought processes are kind of stream of consciousness right now. Yeah. So um, we mentioned Gary Puckett yesterday, you and I, and he happens to live down the street. So we, uh, we, we did see him from a distance yesterday with his wife, the young girl. And uh, uh, so that was, that was like the highlight of the day while we were at the beach. Well, then we start Lady Willpower. That, that was a great song. Young girl, That's get right. out of my something or other. And uh, yeah. I just want to get one of his old costumes, you know, those Union uniforms. Yeah. So we have a Civil War reenactment. We could invite him. So how's, uh, how's the Union Gap aging, would you say? And now, he's probably not going to listen to the podcast, so you can go ahead and just give us I'll tell you, uh, what's pretty amazing, he still sounds great. You know, uh, we saw him in concert with uh, a group of other people a few months ago. Really? They, yeah, they actually tour. And they'll have like, I don't know, seven or eight different acts from that period of time. Yeah. And, and they, uh, one of their stops happened to be here 
you know, locally where he lives. Sure. So we went over and saw that. But, yeah, he kept a schedule of – I mean, you know, I, I guess when we look at the baseball schedule, we go, wow, that's a pretty good schedule. But it, it was one of those things where this group of, of veteran entertainers did, like, 80 dates in like 92 days or something like that. It was ridiculous. Yeah. And I, so far as I know, they've all survived. He's still walking the beach now. So that's you a know, good when, we, when the family owned the Omar Royals, it used to be big to have concerts to try to, you know, mm-hmm. back then minor league baseball didn't draw a ton, even right after the movie Bull Durham. But I can remember having uh, the Beach Boys, which were a pretty decent draw. Jimmy Buffett, who was not a good draw, kind of in the trough of his career. And uh, then we, you know, they'd, they'd book these groups and sometimes they'd, they'd hit, but man, oh man, you're right. These guys would just, Chicago would tour, um, you know, the Who, now everybody. It's, uh, and they get extra singers, so they sound decent. <laughs> I don't know, it's good. Well, what are you hearing about, about Major League Baseball and, uh, Tell us the inside track on when we're going to get started. Boy, you probably know as much as I do about that. You know, uh, we we do. Here's the issue, I think. Uh, you know, last time we talked, we were fairly optimistic that down the road we can get to do that. There are a couple of areas, and New York is the major one, where I think it's going to take a little more time for people uh, to be able to live close to what they're, what they're used to. And so I think that's going to be a little bit of an issue. So it, it would not surprise me to see, uh, to see games played with, with no fans. And I'm not sure how many people – I think eventually people are going to venture into New York. But I think, I think there will be some pushback about going up there, hotels – airlines, public transportation, whatever that may look like, uh, all of that might still be an issue up there for a while. I, I mean, I would hope, I mean, here we are on the cusp of May, that uh, we get to the middle of May and things start to have some serious conversations about trying to get some guys back in shape and, uh, and see if we can't get something going to salvage you know, half of the season, and if they extend it, I don't know if they're going to do that, but they've had some discussions about that. Uh, get to a point where you could get uh, 80, 90. I don't know if they could get 100 games in. Depends on how far they want to extend it. But I'm still hopeful that they can get a baseball season in because I I sense, and you know, I'm, I don't have that expertise, but I sense in parts of the country, you know, they're, they're starting to, with social distancing, open restaurants and other areas uh, and other items. So I think, I think we're going to see a push for that, how that affects baseball and actual fans being in the stands uh, may be a completely another issue. Yeah, I think that's the, uh, the one area. Well, there's two areas that I think are stumbling blocks. One for the fans and uh, being a season ticket holder for two teams, uh, A, with rather see baseball that I could go to or B, get me uh, my money back, neither of which seems to be happening. (laughs) And um, I do think that I was kind of hopeful that spring training would start up in May and that they'd start playing in June. But now what looks to me 
like the last gasp of grabbing the TV money is going to be maybe starting after the All-Star break with the spring training in late, late June or early July. And, of course, it's all speculation. We don't, we don't have a clue. The second problem is the, uh, uh, the union and the labor agreement and the upcoming labor agreement in 2022 or whenever the new one, the old one expires in one more year, I think. So you've got all the precedent, you've got all the concern and the paranoia, and then you got really two classes of players, ones that are in the uh, Scherzer-Verlander, uh, Arenado class, and then the guys that are struggling to make the 20, now it's 26-man roster. Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right about that. I, I do think, you know, from the ownership perspective, that TV money is always significant, really more significant than the gate uh, across the board. So I think they're going to want to recoup as much of that as they can and get as many dates in. So I, I think we'll, we'll see that. And I think that's why there's, a, I think, a great chance that we will see this, this season uh, at least begin with, uh, with maybe empty venues and uh, a lot of TV cameras. So with that in mind, here's the deal. If you recall when, oh, a year or two ago, we got together after late after a ball game, uh, and you had a fellow that you always utilized in Chicago to drive you around and kind of take the, the having to worry about, you know, the traffic in Chicago, and he was a good guy, and you've known him forever. Here's my deal. I want that job for every other city. I want to go to work for you because that may be the only way I get to legitimately see baseball. So I'm thinking ahead. Here's, that's the deal. I got you. Huh? Um, I've always been impressed uh, with your ability to do that. I can uh, – yeah, with the GPS, I can get you wherever you want to go, maybe. And, uh, <laughs> you know, the last plan I saw had um, baseball in Florida, Arizona, and Texas – and uh, ironically, wouldn't it be funny if Tropicana Park became one of the uh, preferred venues in baseball? Oh, I, sure. I think, you know, people have made the joke that they've been practicing social distancing for a long time there. And uh, I, I think uh, it, it would be the perfect venue. And, and I think there's, you know, there's some legitimacy to that with a couple uh, dome stadiums available in, uh, in Florida, although you know, Miami, you know, we talked about New York, that whole Miami area is also an area of concern. So they'd have to factor that in, but then to have um, Arizona, you know, and, and then now Texas with, how, how about a way to bring in a new ballpark there? Yeah. Wouldn't that be something I, you know, I was, I was thinking back, um, you know, I went to Turnpike stadium way back when, and then, Arlington Stadium, and um, did I miss a and then a new one? Did I miss anything or? How many well, they're building are, that. You know, yeah. this year, the amazing thing about that, they're opening a new ballpark this year that actually has a dome on it. It's it's you know retractable, and and as you mentioned, Turnpike Stadium, they turned that into Arlington Stadium, and then they built that great ballpark that they've had there, and it's still a, a great ballpark. Yeah, yeah, but it's That's open cool. air. And, and uh, I, I don't know how they could think that in the middle of the Texas heat, not only would people want to go there and swelter, but the press box 
the roof over the press box actually is see-through. So oh. it, there's no reason to have a roof at all when you're doing the game. In fact, it might be worse because it's glass over you and the sun's beating through. So there are, there were features of that ballpark, as beautiful as it is, architecturally a great ballpark, but but from uh, from a comfort point of view, it made no sense at all. And so now the new ballpark they're building, almost next door, has a, a capability of, of closing, and that always seemed like a good idea in the South. In fact, I have a whole – look, I, as you know, we, we've loved – you and I have loved this game – since the time we were old enough to know there was a game and appreciate uh, the tradition of this game. But, but I differ a little bit from, from many people. You know, when they built the Astrodome, everyone thought it was almost sacrilegious to have the Astrodome and play indoors. Well, number one, it made all the sense in the world. And number two, all you have to do is contrast the conditions that that this this sport now plays its premier event, the World Series, in some of the worst conditions for athletes and fans that you could imagine. Uh, you go back to the 08 World Series when the Rays and the Phillies played, and at veteran at the at the Citizens Park, it was unbelievable uh, the condition of that infield. You have million dollar athletes playing on a mud slick soggy infield and to speak nothing of what you do to the fans there right and i think baseball over a longer period of time ought to think about having every ballpark with the capability of, of closing it if you need uh, particularly if, if you're going to have your premier event in late october as so often now happens yeah and and i thought you were going to go to a you know, like like the Super Bowl, where they play the World Series at a neutral site, which I don't think I'd be in favor of. When um, Reinsdorf lost the Machado sweepstakes, which I think was probably the best thing for the history of the White Sox, I thought, well, there's $300 million. You certainly could put a roof over whatever you want to call the ballpark, today, you know, whether it's sell the cell or guaranteed rate park with the arrow pointing downward. Not a good look for what I call committee. But, um, yeah, T-shirt uh, sales weren't really good with that logo. Yeah, it's like, whoo, bad, bad, uh, bad karma, Jerry. But the, uh, uh, the other thing, when in 97, when uh, Nelly was coaching for the Indians, game five was in the snow in Cleveland, and game six and seven – we're at old Joe Robbie Stadium where it was 100 friggin' degrees. I mean, sure. to your point, it's miserable. Now you can, can contrast that with Miller Park, soon to be called America, Am, American Family Field or something. Sacrilegious. I hate the naming. <laughs> I hate naming rights. But what a great ballpark. They can get that roof open and closed in five or ten minutes in the middle of a game. And, yep. uh, you know, I agree. I, I think the way the money is now that they ought to have a um, certainly a rule for new ballparks to have a, a roof over them. Yeah, I absolutely think that's true just in terms of, you know, respecting your product and putting the best product on the field and, uh, and, you know, on the air and, 
all of those things that you can do to speak nothing of, uh, of the conditions that you're asking these multi-million dollar investments and players to go out and play in. Yeah. So I, I think there, there are lots of reasons to do it. And it, it, it would really be uh, a, a great project to try to build ballparks that had retractable domes and still maintain this, th- that old baseball flavor in a ballpark, which I yeah. think, you know, I, I mean, we grew up going to parks like that. I mean, Wrigley Field is still one, Fenway, and, and that's about it. But, you know, the first ballpark I ever saw, first uh, major league game was in uh, the old, old Bush Stadium, formerly Sportsman's Park in St. Oh. Louis. Yeah. And, and for years before uh, the brewery bought that, you know, that, that was in no good condition at all. And they refurbished it, and that, and that was a, a landmark. So I, I'd love to see baseball have all of those kinds of parks with, with the capability of protecting fans and the product. Yeah. Well, Forbes, Forbes Field and Crosley Stadium and uh, Sportsman's Park and, uh, um, you know, Comiskey, the old Comiskey, the old uh, Detroit, those are just, you know, maybe the uh, amenities aren't are as good as they are now. And, you know, it leads me to another question from a cerebral standpoint. You know, when we were growing up, if a team drew a million people, that was pretty good. I mean, that was the mark of, you know, the Indians rarely got there. The White Sox rarely got there. The, you know, I didn't even know, but for some reason, the more expensive the products gotten, the attendance has gone through the roof. You got any off the cuff, one uh, reasons why you think that's true? Well, and I think a lot of that has to do with corporate uh, support. I, I, and, and that now becomes uh, more crucial. In fact, all of the issues they've had with uh, the franchise here in Tampa Bay, it's centered around two things. One is location, and that's another conversation. But the other one is lack of corporate headquarter presence in this market. Uh, there's no question that this is a good baseball market. Uh, I think uh, I think the TV numbers tell you that. There's a lot of interest here. But there are a couple of things at work, and one of them has lack of corporate uh, headquarter presence in this market. I think it's 29th out of 30. might be 30 now because the, the San Diego market used to be the 30th, and I, I have to believe that you know they, they are attracting more and more corporate presence there. But – that was an issue from the beginning. And then lo- location of the ballpark here right. is another issue. So there, it's, it's kind of a double whammy there. Uh, you're looking for walk-up attendance and individuals to buy season tickets. And then you have a dearth of corporate headquarter presence here. And that has always been sort of a bedrock of any franchise. So I, I think that both of those things – factor into that issue yeah and then you look at Minute Maid Park for example that was built in the last I'd say 10 10 to 15 years and it kind of looks like a coliseum with a baseball field inside but then you contrast that with Tropicana and it's like wow I mean they're both named after orange juice but they they don't look like <laughs> inside it seems so dark when you you know when you look at Tropicana Field I don't know if it is does it does it seem dark when you're in there no, it really doesn't. And the other side of that is, from a from a spectator point of view, the sight lines are good. Uh, the fact that it's not uh, 
this monolithic giant of a facility, I, I think is one of the good things about it. Uh, it, 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 is, it, it does offer uh, some fairly decent amenities, but some of those are limited in terms of space and, and, and from sight lines from what would be like the stadium club. Uh, you know, interestingly enough, the, and I don't know how many people know this, and I don't know how many people who designed this uh, want that to be known, but the basic bowl of that, the grandstand of Tropicana Field, was tailored after one of the great ballparks in America, and that's the one you have right there in Kansas City. Uh, they have uh, the basic structure and design of, of the stands in Tropicana Field almost mirror that of the ballpark in Kansas City. No, and that's know. one of the greatest ballparks, <clears throat> excuse me, one of the greatest ballparks uh, in the last couple generations. It, it is one of the greatest ballparks with the, some of the worst concessions, although they're getting, see, for me, you know, I've, I look at concessions and you look at the sight line for good reason. Uh, speaking of sight line, what's the, of all the ballparks you've broadcast in, and the God only knows 7,000 or 8,000 or however many thousand of broadcasts you've done, what, uh, and, and you can be as diplomatic as you want, but from a broadcast standpoint, tell me the best and the worst uh, press boxes in terms of proximity to the field, I guess, or ability to do your job? Well, um, you know, I, I like the sidelines in Tropicana Field. I think they're pretty good from a broadcast point of view. Um, you know, the, the two parks, the, the two fairly new ballparks, they've been a bunch built since then, but I, I like the Houston ballpark and I like the Seattle ballpark, the totality of those ballparks. Um, what's happening in terms of sight lines in some of the newer ones, uh, the press box is going up and up and up, and it makes it difficult to get a sense of fly balls and, and sometimes pop-ups, too. Okay. Uh, the ballpark in Washington, uh, you're, you're, uh, it's like you're on top of uh, a skyscraper in Manhattan looking down, trying to figure out the, what's going on. And, and there is a tendency to do that, which is, which is kind of interesting to me. Uh, for years, uh, TV was sort of an afterthought in, in the construction of ballparks. And so you would find issues that you might have in, in a booth or even camera placement and all of those things. And, and that, that was an afterthought it appeared and the design of a lot of these ballparks and and the the interesting thing about that is that tv and tv rights tv money has turned out to drive this game more than anything and to have to have the idea that you could build a new ballpark and then as an afterthought think yeah we should have maybe thought about where we put the, the high home camera or uh, you know high first as opposed to well, we'll make some adjustment and, and stick a guy with a camera there. Yeah. And I, I, I think it might be better. I hope that it's better in, in the parks that are coming online. I don't know what the Texas ballpark's going to be like in that regard. But it'd be interesting to have um, a conversation with producers and directors uh, in regard to positioning of cameras and what you do 
to help accommodate getting getting your product on this visual screen that that we're all addicted to and and that's been an issue um you know I, and and what i do when people ask me about favorite ballparks i say look you i have to throw wrigley out and fenway out because uh they're unique ballparks now they're landmarks and you love those two ballparks from a comfort point of view and from a booth point of view uh they they certainly do not have anywhere near uh, the best in a booth or a comfort factor and, and in sometimes sight lines. And, and they're limited by the basic design that they start with, this old ballpark. And so you put those aside and say, we're, we're doing the best we can with what we have there. But some of the new ones, when they come in and, and fail to put camera positions in the right places or fail to put a, a TV booth or the radio booth, the radio guys, you know, they will all, in some cases, I mean, almost all the radio guys now will put TV monitors off the home or visiting feed in their booth just to help them as well. Uh, that used to never happen. You know, there used to be, well, you know, we, we'll see everything needs to be seen. Right. Well, it only makes sense to put a to put, put a monitor in there. But in some cases, they really need them because, you know, the, uh, the sidelines aren't as good as they, uh, they could be. Well, you hear about MLB upgrading all the uh, um, fields to accommodate the gathering of video evidence for, you know, every pitch has, you know, 10,000 digital seconds or digital whatevers. And I, do they use the commercial TV cameras or does MLB f require teams to put in their own cameras for stealing signs and that sort of thing? <laughs> well, so, uh, apparently some teams have put in their own camera. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, I, I think I think the initial idea was to rely on the cam the cameras that were in there, right? And to to get as many views. For an example, when we stop play and we go to, the, you know, the umpiring headquarters in New York to figure out if they got to play right or not, uh, they're they're going to take every camera. You know, it used to be a point when the, when they first started televising. You know, you had very limited cameras, you know, three TV cameras, maybe four, and, and now you have a lot more, so you can get a lot of different angles. So they're going to use all, all of those TV cameras now. And there, there aren't a lot of, I mean, there are a lot more cameras now all over the place in society in general. We're all on camera at some point, you know. But uh, I, I think they're going to they're gonna use the plethora of cameras that, that a TV crew will have, you know, and you're going to have the basic coverage and then all the add-ons, depending upon how much production cost a particular outlet wants to spend on equipping uh, their crews with cameras and all the other things, slow-mo and all the other things they have. Right. It would, you know, one thing as a Cub season ticket holder, it seems to me that from time to time, they always honor the, maybe at the end of the year, the camera guys and, and girls, women and men, but, and maybe it was different in Chicago and maybe it was different, you know, in that period of time in the eighties and, and, uh, moving, you know, 40 years to the night to the 2020s. But would you be friends? Did you get to know the camera guys or was it kind of two different worlds? No, I, they're great. I, I've always felt as if we were 
uh, an entire crew. And, you know, I mean, we're going to have, we're going to have a high home camera guy usually pretty close to us and many times, and we'll have a guy in the booth, you know, to do opens and closes and, and they can turn around and have that high home shot from, from um, the booth point of view. So, and, and the ones who are close to you in proximity, you're going to know them a lot better, but particularly your home crew, you know, you're going to see them ideally, you know, 80, 81 times a year. So, they become all of those, all of those folks in the truck and all the cameramen, all those people, I think, uh, are, are kind of unsung heroes and heroines. You know, they, they do a great job, most of them, and uh, are pretty dedicated to what they do. And, and, and I think I was going to say they don't get a lot of recognition, but I, I don't think a lot of them seek that out. I, I think they're, they're honed in to, to their profession and, and their skill set, and they're interested in giving the director and, and the producers the best shots they can. And and uh, so, sure, I, through the years, uh, you know, we see people and you don't see them all the time, but and and particularly inside your own division because you go there three times. Well, yeah. that crew in Baltimore. Those are familiar faces to us, you know. Same yeah. thing with the guys we work with, guys and gals in New York. Uh, we work with up there, so same kind of thing. So yeah, you do. There, there's an interaction, but I, I think that's probably uh, I, some people probably interact more than others. But it's been my experience that it's uh, kind of a collegial atmosphere, and has been pretty much that way since you know I broke in a hundred years ago. Does the production crew travel with you? I know the. Cameramen generally don't, but I mean, your producer, engineer, and then guys in the in the truck. Do they transport that from venue to venue, or do you take what you get when you get to Kansas City and use their guys? Yeah, what we we'll use our our director and producer. We'll have a graphics guy, so we may travel three or four technical people there with us. They sort of bridge the gap between technical and creative, and both all of those roles that we mentioned. So we'll travel those people and then the rest of the crew, you know, the audio people, uh, the camera people, the uh, switcher uh, on the uh, on the board in the truck uh, who actually executes the shots at the direction of, uh, of the director and producer. So uh, those people will normally be local people, regional and local people. But you get to know them through the years as well. And uh, we've been you know, on, on this, this circuit now with the race since 98. So, uh, we've, we've gotten to be, be friendly with those people and, uh, consider them, you know, the friends the same way we would consider, I guess, anyone in our, in our own business colleagues. No, that's cool. And that's something that, you know, fans never get a chance to really, you know, and maybe nobody cares. I do. I think it's fascinating that, you know, you, you or you and Brian Anderson or whoever the face of the the team becomes, but yet those people in the back, I know WGN really went out of the way to personalize the, the guys that were the cameramen, especially the center field guys seem to get a lot of time. <clears throat> now with the marquee sports network taking over and having uh, nothing to show right now, other than old footage, uh, it'll be interesting to see. But f- from, from my interest in how a broadcast comes together, I love it. The pregame, the postgame, all that stuff to me is pretty cool and pretty fascinating. And, you know, 
God, you you really you and all the other broadcasters in the industry that do baseball um, are the personality of the team. I mean, there's no you know you might interview the manager or you know before the game, after the game. There's much more availability now with the manager, but still, it all comes back to the broadcasters. You, I mean, that's cool. Well, and I think I think baseball, other sports have an opportunity to do that, but. I don't think it's as great an opportunity as baseball because we're there basically every day. And I think baseball has had a tendency to, um, to be part of the fabric of a community because, you know, there's a hundred and in the old days, 154 games, 162 now and all the spring training games. I think that's been a part or should be a part of every uh, broadcaster's mindset when they go into a market. It's one of the reasons that this game is more local and more regional, I think, because of the structure of it. And I think it needs to be that way. I, I think the pacing of the game is different than the than a football game. I, I've always thought uh, football, for an example, was an event, and baseball is a process. And I think you have to have those relationships and a process more than you have to have them and, and events. And so that's the way I've always approached the game. I just think it's, it's, uh, I think it's a lot better if a broadcaster has that in mind, what you're trying to do is, is make uh, friends and have people feel that you're approachable and that because you're there all the time. And, sure. and so every once in a while, uh, there will be some personal moments in a telecast. People want to see that they want to see, the human side of a broadcaster. They want to see the human side to the extent that they can of players. That's one of the things that we have to sell. And one of the, one of the reasons this game has been as successful as it's been. Well, and I think that's one of the reasons that this is a, it, it, it transcends generations. I mean, uh, my dad loved baseball. I love baseball. My kids love baseball. And my grandkids love baseball. And I think a lot of that is, you know, I'll talk to any of my contemporaries, and regardless of where they come from, they had their transistor radio under their pillow like, like we did. And uh, they had an affinity. I was just talking to somebody this morning. And, and uh, <laughs> you know, and everybody, it's like, what kind of ice cream do you like? Some people like this, that. You know, you could take a guy that, that – you thought was a terrible broadcaster. And I'll say Bob Elson because he's been gone for a long time. And, and, and I liked Bob. I mean, I grew up listening to Bob Elson and, and Don Wells or Milo Hamilton. This guy this morning loved Milo Hamilton. He listened to Milo Hamilton and Gene Elston. I guess they were together. Every time he came home in Houston, he'd turn on that whenever that was there, whether it was you with him, I don't know, but you know, Milo, you and I've talked about Milo and Milo, um, great announcer, blah, 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 and I'm not going to bag on anybody. Where I think Major League Baseball drops the ball is not having you, Euchre, you name it, Tom. All these guys should do postseason baseball, even for like in the old days for three innings or half the game. Jack Brickhouse would come into the broadcast booth, and he'd do the game with Joe Graziol or whoever was doing it, Vince Scully. Um, it just – we need you guys, and I think the the ratings suffer. And with all due respect, I know you love Jack Buck, and with all due respect, Cub fans aren't that fond of his son. 
But be that as it may, and I don't know the guy, so I mean, my opinions are just, I'm a, I'm a Joe fan. But I yeah. would much rather have, um, you know, the, the Chicago broadcasters doing the postseason games. And I, I don't know why they don't do that. Tell yeah, me. Yeah, I, I, I think, <clears throat> well, you, you know, you're going to have to ask, um, you, you're going to have to ask, how, how can I say this and not get fired? <laughs> I know, uh, Fox is everywhere now. Yeah, but you're going to have to ask the executives who make those decisions and, and who have insight far beyond those of us more uh, uh, lower echelon mere mortals who are walking around yeah. uh, kind of at the base of the mountain and they're at the top in the, in the clouds. Um, I, 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 think, um, I, I think that's largely driven by, um, by numbers and the – the desire for networks to establish their separate identity. And, and I think what they lose, what they fail to see is what we were just talking about. I, I think you can get away with that in some other sports, but I think the baseball fan who has invested uh, not one or two days a week in a game, uh, they've invested every day for six months and, and even spring training. I, I mean, people will watch, spring training games and we know that that the that the entertainment value is not always the greatest particularly you know on the second half of spring training games but people will invest time to watch those and they invest time in a baseball season and that's why it goes back to the the characterization of it being a process and i think they'd be well served i, I the, not too long ago i i was listening to uh, the 68 world series part of that there were some clips in there. You know, Kurt Gowdy was doing the game for the network, but they had local guys with him and Ernie Harwell or Harry Carey at that time. Um, you know, what a series that was when the Cardinals were up three games to one and the Tigers came back and won the World Series. Yeah. But, but the clips of those, you did hear some of the local broadcasters get a chance to do the games. And, and the other side of that is, you know, radio had more of an impact then than it does now, and TV had less of an impact. And with technology being what it is today, TV's everywhere. But I, I, think, it, I think they would be well-served to do that. It sounds self-serving. You know, would I show up and do those games in a minute? I would, I'd be a part of that. No well, question. It, just, it seems so um, – it just seems to defy logic that the uh, – you know, and I go back to Milwaukee, you know, they, um, both Craig Kashan and, and, and Nelly, when the Brewers got into the playoffs, they were pretty much done. And it just, it, it defies logic. I know that the football, you know, you got to be a star. You got to have a Troy Aikman or you got to have a Tony Romo or a guy that sits in the booth that's got, you know, this um, uh, star-studded background. Whereas in baseball, the local guys, the Ron Santos of the world, the Mike Shannons of the world, the uh, Bob Brenleys of the world, the, um, you know, the, the, every market, um, you know, there's two Brian Andersons, I think, that are broadcasting, one with you and one in Milwaukee. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and I'm not going to get into what announcers, I already have, and a lot of times with you and Hamilton and Euchre and some of the favorites that I get a chance to listen to, but they're all in their own way. Um, adding to my enjoyment as opposed to 
there's nothing wrong with another friend of yours, Tim McCarver, but you know, I, I, I knew that when there are guys on first and second, the pitcher was coming up, he was probably going to bunt. I didn't need Tim to tell me about that. But again, I'm the most critical of announcers because I love it so much. And, and he, and on the good side of McCarver, I don't know if you watch his, the shows where he'd interview people. Oh my God. They were great. I mean, they were, they were great. And so I don't expect you to bag on anybody, but I'm going to take a break because when I take a break and, and get into my Papa Kino's, my new sponsor, he gave me a hat. So I know that he's going to make me a, an offer that I won't. I told people that I pay a hundred dollars a month for people to sponsor me, you know, kind of the, yeah, the okay. reverse. When we come back, I want to talk about three guys uh, and just nice things about these three guys. Cause there's probably nothing bad that we could say in my, I don't know them all. I know one a little bit, uh, Harry Carey, Joe Madden, and uh, Tony Kubek. So okay. we'll be back and we'll talk about three of those guys after a quick minute to identify all of our networks that are listening. Hey everybody. Thanks for that pause. And uh, the list of, the list of sponsors I know is going to grow and grow and grow. But uh, right now we're back with uh, Dwayne stats and uh, I'm having a, I'm having a blast and it's always fun to visit with, with Dwayne. And we talked before the break that he was going to talk a little bit about, let's start with Kubek because I thought Graziola Kubek, um, number one, Kubek was a hell of a baseball player, but beyond that, I thought those this week, you know, the, the weekly NBC broadcast was great with those two guys. Yeah. Tony's, uh, Tony's, he's in a, he's in a category for me. He's in a category all by himself. Uh, he, he has never lost, uh, the idea of who he is. He's, I'm sure, and I, you know, I didn't know him when he played. I only knew him as a broadcaster uh, on a one-on-one -on -one basis, and then worked with him in New York. Uh, he he is absolutely true to himself and everyone else. And um, we we used to have great conversations. I, I treasure the five years I spent with Kubek when we did the Yankee games on the Madison Square Garden Network. Uh, those were a special, special years for me. Um, I, I mean, I, I recall when, when I took that job and they, you know, they had just gotten the rights and there was a year when I was still under contract, couldn't go there. And they, who were you with before that? Just with uh, the Cubs. Okay. I was at WGN. And um, so I, I didn't know for sure. Um, but I had a pretty good idea that they were going to come back at the end of my deal and want to talk again. And, and when they did, we talked about partners and, and they had an interim uh, crew that one year and, and Kubek's name came up and I was really excited by that as, you know, I'm a young broadcaster and, and this was a big move for me. And Tony had been a, this this great player and a, and a network broadcaster and and what I found in him being alongside him every day and and traveling with him because we uh, and and he would introduce me which was the greatest thing too I got to know Mickey Mantle only because of Tony Kubek uh, Cleet Boyer was on the 
on their coaching staff for a while, but, you know, because I was with Quebec, I had instant credibility, you know, with all those guys, which was what a gift that was from him to me. And I don't know that he ever saw it, that he was doing anything for me. That's just the kind of guy he was. So those were, those were great years. I I love that. That's cool. Who did the radio at that time? Um, Yankees. Do you remember? Yes. Uh, John Sterling actually was there with uh, Joe Angel. Wow. Okay. That was the crew then. Wow. And, um, and Joe eventually wound up with the Marlins and then the Orioles. But, um, yeah, Kubek was great. You know, he, um, he, he, he is a singular individual and I, I have a few of those in, in my background and people in broadcasting who means so much to me. Gene Elston was one, um, and Kubek uh, was another one. Uh, Tony was just such an honest guy, uh, an intelligent guy. We, we had conversations about baseball, but we had conversations about politics and all kinds of things about him. Yeah. And he would, you know, whatever he believed, um, Margaret, his wife, always thought that, you know, he would want to know what someone believed and then he would take the opposite view just for fun. But that was great. I loved all of that. And, and I, I'll tell you, th- th- this is how gracious Kubek was when Jim Abbott threw his no-hitter. And TV is largely uh, an analyst game more than, than radio is an analyst game. Right. And so the analyst is going to be the focus of a telecast more times than not. So Jim Abbott has this no-hitter going. And um, so we get through eight innings of that. We've done all the stuff. He's talked about all that. We go to the ninth inning, and he turned to me before we came back from break, and he says, this is all yours now. I've said everything I can say. Take it. Take it home. Yeah. And he did. He let me do that, which I, what a great, what a great number one, what a great compliment to have him, a guy of his stature, allow that to, to give me that opportunity. What a gracious uh, professional and, and a gracious man personally he is. And so I, uh, that, that's one of those moments that you'll just never forget. You know, there are guys, there are plenty of stories in this, uh, in this business about broadcasters fighting each other for, you know, uh, this moment and that moment and all that. Sure. And at the end of the day, what you hope to be is partners. You know, you're next to maybe your wife, you're going to spend as much time with, a, with this person in the booth as you do with your wife. So it'd be a good idea if you had some compatibility. Well, and traveling and, you know, and sometimes, you know, Dining after the game, during the game, before the game, press box—you know, you name it. I yeah. can understand. <clears throat> Who um, did you ever get a chance during the times that you were actually broadcasting? <clears throat> and I'm talking about during the year to year to year. Would you a have a chance and b have the desire to listen to other broadcasters, or had you had your fill by the time you were done with your game? <laughs> no, I, I, love, I love hearing other broadcasters, particularly, yeah. well, it, not only baseball, but particularly baseball, but I do. And, and I, I, I love to listen to them from a fan's perspective, but because I've been in the business so long, 
Absolutely. You can't, you can't do just that. You know, you're, you're going to, you're going to look at it through a, a professional lens as well, but I love to listen to guys. There's no yeah, question. Ray Scott doing the Packer football. Oh, man. You know what? Again, there's a guy, you know, you, you talk about this commanding voice. He, you know, he, he didn't have to, he didn't have to write you uh a 1,200-page novel because that wasn't right. his approach. He was pretty basic, but he had such command and presence with that voice. I mean, there's nobody who could do uh, a Packer game, you right. know, or, or any network game that he ever did. Really, the way he did, he, he was the – as minimalist go, he was the supreme minimalist, you know, with that voice and that presence. Yeah. So he was great, and I – you know, again, as a, as a younger broadcaster, you get a chance to to run in to meet and talk with these guys. He had uh, interest in a in a restaurant in uh, Minneapolis for a period of time, and so I, we'd always you know try to slide in there just to, on the oh, yeah. odd chance that he might be in there too to have a conversation or two. Yeah, no, so I remember star dollar touchdown, boom, that was it. I mean, yeah. uh, amidst the uh, people at, at Lambeau Field. Well, another guy in the uh, the trio that I wanted to talk a little bit about also has a couple restaurants. Well, he had a couple, one in Tampa and the one at Wrigley Field is no longer, but Joe Madden, obviously you called a few games with uh, Madden at the helm of the Tampa Bay Rays or whatever they were called back then. Yeah, Joe, um, you know, you have to, from this point of view, uh, he he was nationally, as, as we all know, kind of an unknown. He'd been in the Angel system for all those years. So when he came here, and he he was sort of the uh, the new age hippie type manager who was open to uh, a lot of uh, ideas that that other people thought uh, you know certainly went against the grain of traditional baseball. Right. And yet he was very accommodating about all of that. He, he was not, uh, he was, he was not pushy to the point where he, you know, he proclaimed himself the genius uh, from the get go. He, he was kind of low key about that and open and, and would listen uh, as well as give you an idea of what he thought about things. And my first inclination or my first uh, run in with Joe, not a run in, but the first time I, I got to be aware of him was when he was with the angels and it was really um, in, in concert with Kubek because uh, Madden became a part of the angels crew because he was one of the first guys to embrace the idea that this, this, uh, this thing called a computer, you could help organize. And, you know, that, that's how he found himself in a position where, he essentially was running the Angels spring training camp and, and became more prominent in the, uh, in the Angels organization in terms of uh, putting his, his name on the radar. Right. And Kubek was always looking for things like that. So he, when he would hear that, you know, he'd search out that guy just because it was a, a different idea, a fresh idea. Kubek was always open for that. And, and so when Madden came here, I, you know, I had that, sense of maybe what he was all about but it was a great learning experience and I I enjoyed all the time that that Joe was here 
uh, with all of the uh, the ideas that he had, not only, uh, and some of those ideas were his, some of those came from up top because they had a front office here with Andrew Friedman at the time and all those all of the support staff. They were encouraged to come up with all those ideas. Uh, on a personal note, I, uh, I had a great appreciation for Madden. Uh, you know, Dan Wheeler is my son-in-law, and Dan originally was signed. He was drafted a draft and follow kid out of Rhode Island by the Devil Rays and uh, got a little bit of major league time here, kind of rushed to the big leagues, and then went back to the minor leagues, back and forth, and, and wound up uh, leaving here and, uh, and going to the Mets, got to the big leagues with the Mets after a, a year at AAA in the Atlanta organization. And then uh, from the Mets went to Houston, and he had success over there as a setup guy and closed a few games, but was really the setup guy, seventh and eighth inning guy. And, um, and then, you know, went to the World Series in 05, and then a, a couple of years later was traded over here, a long way to get to my point, but, you know, you know by Sorry, now you know, I can think all the time in the world. So he, uh, so he came here in 07 when this team really had, not, had not won, but things started to change a little bit. And one of the things Dan did uh, I thought was great, he believed in passing it along. And when he was with the Mets, he had John Franco and uh, Mike Stanton and David Weathers in the bullpen that took him under their wing and prepared him. And so when he came here, he found himself in a similar role. He was still a young guy, uh, probably late 20s. He might have been 30, but a, a young guy, but a lot of kids down there. And, for example, J.P. Howell made the transition to the bullpen. Right. Yeah. And Dan had something to do with that. But what I, what I loved about Madden, and Joe, Joe had said that he thought that Dan was the first guy they added to this team that started the turnaround that they had. He came over here for enough of the year in 07 to help guys. And then when this team went to the World Series in 08, Dan was not a guy who was, who was going to seek the limelight and, uh, and promote his own cause. But I just I thought it was really uh, a nice thing of Joe Madden to say that, that Dan was really the first guy of consequence that they got here that started the turnaround. And I always appreciated that in Madden. And at the end of the day, you know, Joe, Joe's, a, Joe's a working class guy right. who, uh, who had to be patient and battle for everything that he uh, has accomplished. And so I, I think he took that working class mentality and work ethic and became um, some people would, would, would say thinking outside the box, kind of a hippie mentality, you know, whatever he had and put those all together. And I think it helped him relate to players. And at the same time, nothing wrong with promoting your own cause. And, and I think he's uh, you know capable of doing that and, and did that and promoted it to a point where uh, he, he had great success here and then found himself in Chicago and you don't get too much of a higher profile than Chicago. No. And then, you know, back to the angels and, and you have to think at this point, 
that's probably where he's going to ride it into uh, the sunset. Absolutely. Uh, following, uh, following Gene Autry's trail with the Angels. Yeah. As a, as a, a from a fan's perspective, uh, you know, and, and watching this ESPN, the last dance series that they've been showing lately, you know, I think back of Madden almost being a Zen master that Phil Jackson became sort of known for. And in the baseball vernacular, it's probably a little more difficult with 26 guys and eight or nine coaches. But, um, you know, Joe was always, from a, from a fan's perspective, um, he was always a guy that seemed to um, make the game fun for guys who had this 162-game grind. And, you know, it was probably inevitable that – that would come to an end at some point as, you know, as Billy Martin said, managers are hired to get fired or somebody said that from yeah. Billy Hitchcock to Billy Martin. I don't know. Who said <laughs> it. But, uh, but still uh, Madden as a fan would drive you absolutely crazy. And every manager, Eddie Stanky, you name it, they all drove me crazy. And I think I told you last time I watched game seven replay of the world series, Cleveland, Chicago or Cleveland and, uh, yeah, the Cubs. And I'm still swearing at Madden for some of them for, you know, why in the world are you taking him out in the fifth inning? Hendricks is pitching great. And, you know, Kay would walk in and go, dude, the game's over. You, you know what happened. Relax. And it's like, you know, he <laughs> sometimes you think, and I think, and, and rookies like me think that these guys overthink it uh, sometimes. And the really great guys – you know, the, the Earl Weavers of the world didn't overthink it. But, you know, it's like broadcasters. They're all subject to uh, fans' criticism because you guys are in the, in the limelight so much. But uh, the last guy I want to talk about is Harry Carey, who I got to meet a few times with Dave, but uh, an interesting guy with the Cardinals, an interesting guy with the White Sox, and then with the Cubs. So uh, give me the... Give me the uh, G rating of Harry Carey. <laughs> well, uh, you know, I grew up in Southern Illinois, which was great Cardinal territory, and and um, heard him probably as, as much as anybody else, although I became, you know, somehow a Colt 45, an Astros fan, yeah. because I could pick them up on radio at night, and I just thought as a nine-year-old kid, that was the greatest thing to have Major League Baseball in the, uh, the wild and uh, woolly state of uh, Texas, which I just, as a kid, you know, I was watching Gene Autry and Roy Rogers and all those guys. Sure. I thought, wow, that's great baseball and Texas. That's the greatest thing ever. So, uh, so I, I had gotten a lot of uh, exposure to Harry when he was in St. Louis without question. And then everybody from that, you know, he had one year at Oakland then to Chicago with the White Sox and the, and the Cubs. And, um, and, you know, who knew that I'd wind up in Chicago with the Cubs when he was up there as well. Yeah. He was great. Um, you know, Harry is probably anything and everything that everyone has heard and, um, and was proud of it. You know, he, he would not, uh, he would not run from a story. I think whether it was a kind of a positive or a negative twist for him, I think he enjoyed it all. Yeah, uh, I, I I just do. 
he, when I went up there, he told me, um, <laughs> he said, we, we were driving out to, um, and, and I actually was in a car with him driving, which was a great experience as well. Oh, that's cool. We were driving uh, from uh, Mesa out to uh, uh, where the Brewers used to train, and I guess Chandler maybe. Sure. And um, so, and and he half the time didn't know where he would, you know, where he needed to go. So he at, at an intersection, he rolled down the window and yelled at the guy in the next car and go, "Hey, hey, can you tell me how to go? I need to drive to Chandler." Do I need to go left or right? So he talked to all those guys. Yeah. But in those conversations, just the two of us, and he said, look, he said, uh, he said, I'm not going to tell you what to do. You've been around long enough. He goes, you know how these things work. But if you need any information, if you need to know where the power lies or who does this or that, just ask me, and I'll, I'll let you know. But you know, I, I don't need to tell you. So I thought that was great. Then he gave me a couple of examples that I'm going to save for the book as to, uh, you yeah. know, this guy or that guy and all that. No, no, no. That's great. But I, I enjoyed them. Um, I really did. You know, people, people had uh, negatives and positive impressions of him. But uh, I'll tell you the thing, there was no question about his, his enthusiasm for the game was genuine. He loved being there. He lived through that. I think it was the it was an extension of his life. Um, people say, "Well, he had this big ego," but he was he was every man's ego. He really was, and and that's what made him successful. Um, you know, and, and you're going to hear you'll hear all kinds of stories from people who enjoyed him, people who didn't. But at the end of the day, what he wanted to do was sell baseball. He once told me that as a kid in St. Louis, and he was sort of a street urchin kid in St. Louis. He didn't talk about his childhood a lot. But he told me he would listen as a kid to the Cardinal games on radio back then. And he found them to be so dull. And he said when he would sneak into the ballpark and go to a game, he goes, it was – one of the most exciting things in his life. And he couldn't understand how a guy who was broadcasting the game could make it so dull when, when he went to the game as a kid and saw it, it was such uh, such a positive and exciting experience. And I think from that, from that kid came his whole approach to broadcasting a game. Now on radio, a little different than TV, you know, things might happen a little differently on the, on the field and, and how he described it on the air. So would he embellish a few things? There's no question about that. And if he liked the player, he would embellish him in a positive way. And if he maybe didn't like the player, he, he would embellish that to the negative. Yeah. And that, that was just part of who he was. But at the end of the day, he, I think he felt as a, as a, kid who who came from essentially nothing his security was in making making the game exciting as much as he could and he he thought that that probably one way or another whether it was going to be controversial and that's an extension of ego and i i'm in no position to you know psychoanalyze myself much less anybody else 
But I, but I think that's part of, part of his appeal to people was he was on display for what he was. And I think, I think you saw plenty through the years, radio and TV and, you know, Cardinals, White Sox, Cubs, you saw who he was and, and what you, what you saw was who he really was. He was, he was, as you know, he was like, he was like that off the air as well. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, well, he, he wanted to be, he wanted a lot of action and be the center part of that. And, and sometimes he overstepped his bounds as, as he found out in St. Louis, you know, there's some things you could do and some things you can't do. <laughs> well, you know, when, when, uh, when you uh, were teamed with Dave, Nellie, and Steve Stone and Harry Carey, I think Dave, there are very few people that, you know, he came from Watts, everybody, nobody told, <clears throat> nobody believed he'd play Major League Baseball. I played for 10 years. Yeah. Made the All-Star team, had a great, great career. I think he would have made a great manager. I, I, you know, I was always hoping that his broadcasts, um, you know, would equal the skill level that he had for the rest of baseball. And I thought he did an okay job, but he was sort of, um, I think, a bit intimidated by Harry to the point where he really didn't think Harry liked him at all. And mm -hmm. when Dave was through coaching in Cleveland and was approached to do the um, analysis with Tom Hamilton, Dave found out later down the road that the reason he got that job was because of Harry. Harry went to bat for him and said, this guy is good. He's interesting. He's fun. He loves the game. And he got, he got the job. And he was till, till the end of his life. He was always appreciative, but I think he was a little surprised at how he had uh, uh, misunderstood Harry a little bit during the time that they, they were, you know, able to work a couple innings a day together. Interesting. Yeah. Well, I, that, you know, that's great information. I, and I think I, I could understand that. Dave and I had some conversations about that as well. Um, the, the one thing I found that on the air, um, it really helps if you can be comfortable with yourself and with a partner, if you have a partner. Sure. Uh, you have to have a certain amount of trust. Uh, that's, uh, that's one of the things I think that's, uh, that goes without saying. And there have been plenty of people, there have been plenty of misunderstandings in the history of, of a baseball broadcast booth. And, and some of them, some people didn't like each other, and that was pretty much on the table from the beginning. But I think there, there can be some misunderstandings about things like that, because you're right about Dave, uh, a very intelligent guy, uh, a good guy to his core, and, and a personable guy. And so you had all of those elements, and, and I think that's what – that's what we tried when, you know, we would do six innings of radio every day. I think that's what we tried to highlight in that, that, you know, we're a couple of guys who, who liked each other, loved the game, and we're going to try to tell you about the game and have some fun doing it. And I think over time, I, those are the things that, that you could develop, you know, and Davies, when he came in, his, his time in the booth, his experience in the booth was limited. So 
we knew going in, it would take a little time to develop all of those things. Right. And, but I could see, I, I could see where Dave felt that maybe, you know, Harry would have preferred to have his choice in or, you know, all of that. And, and I, I don't know what went on behind the scenes there, but I, I do know that, um, um, you know, the, the people who made that decision were the people who were supposed to make that decision with uh, WGN radio. Right. And, and you know what, as a, as a avid fan and avid listener and, uh, uh, sometimes critique of, of guys doing the game, the uh, there's nothing wrong, in my opinion, of uh, being a homer. A little, you know, a little bit can go a long ways. Mm-hmm. But I thought that with Harry, he was almost better when the Cubs sucked. I mean, because he was the whole game. He was the entertainment, and he he just could not understand how you know Byron Brown would drop a ball, or how somebody would miss <laughs> a cutoff, or how they could be so bad. And when they you know, when they would do good, you knew he felt he felt that greatness, and he and and uh, you know, it, it almost with Harry didn't the chemistry didn't seem to matter because he was going to be the guy, and and the guy was going to adapt. And I'm thinking of maybe Steve Stone or Dave or whoever did the did the uh, analytics with with Harry, but Harry was Harry was going to be Harry, and exactly. I think he said it very well. And I think that's one thing that I find with some of the national broadcast and even some of the newer guys they're they're either afraid to make a misstatement or they want to be so sterile that they lose something in in the broadcast and uh you know there are guys like that and then there are guys that that uh don't have the ego and don't want to monopolize the microphone and aren't saying hey you know you you spoke 60 percent of this broadcast and i i didn't felt like i ought to be getting more time yeah exactly and uh, we have that. That's a that that kind of, I think that's a problem, and it comes across to the public. But you know, we never get that. We never get that feedback. We just kind of imagine what what's going on when there's a bad deal. But I take a guy like Dan Plezak, who's on MLB Network and does some shows week to week. And my buddy Craig Kashan had an opportunity when Harry or when Euchre wouldn't. Uh, do a game or Brian Anderson had to go do a Fox thing. They'd get to, they did a couple games together. And he said, you know, please, Zach would come in and say, look, you know, I got, uh, I've got, you know, nothing but uh, enjoyment for a broadcast and doing the game. And it came across, you know, they didn't step on each other. And I think you and, and uh, Brian Anderson do the same thing. And, and that's gotta be fun and gotta be a relief. It'd be bad going to the ballpark. It'd be like, you know, trying a lawsuit with a guy you don't like. Uh, mm-hmm. the, the jury figures that out and your jury is like, uh, you know, millions of listeners to, uh, to your broadcast. And, uh, to me, I just think I found so much joy in even listening to these replays, uh, because the broadcaster is to me a big part of everything that goes on in that two or three hour time period. Well, I think we ought to be able to have a good time. And, uh, you know, if, 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 Two guys come to the ballpark and they're prepared to do uh, the job if they've done their homework uh, and have uh, half a personality. Let's sit down and do the game. You know, let's just have some fun doing it. That's a good recipe. A good recipe for the success that has followed you along uh, through your career 
uh, in your first book, Position to Win, and now you're coming out with a sequel. Maybe not in the technical sense, but we can't wait for, what's the timeline on a new book? You got any ideas? Oh my, you know, it's, um, I have no idea yet. I mean, we, you know, we, we discussed that. Uh, Dave Scheiber sat down with me and, and Dave is a, a great writer in his own, in his own right. And um, we'd love to be able to um, come up with uh, the idea and, uh, and do that. And I think if, if, if enough people keep uh, recommending that we do it, we'll probably uh, get it done eventually. But you know, it's, you, you have to establish that whole rapport. I, I do know that uh, when we wrote the other one, Brian Anderson, who would sit across the aisle on the plane for me, uh, said that he would never write a book because of that season that uh, all I did was uh, sit there and go through all of those reams of paper and stuff that we had written to proofread and scratch out and change this and all that. And he said he didn't think he wanted any part of that. <laughs> but it would be fun, and, and I've had, um, it, it, you know, probably a little time to do something, but I've been reading more books than I've uh, been writing recently, and, uh, and that's a big part of what I've done during this hiatus that we've all had. <clears throat> well, So uh, at some point, you know, we hope to get around and maybe doing another one. Well, you are an avid reader. You seem to, you know, whenever we have dinner together, you eat a lot more healthy than I do, and... Uh, you're you're uh, a cerebral guy, so I'm looking forward to your next book. But I'm looking forward a to getting together at a baseball game, and uh, maybe I can talk you into doing another podcast before the season starts, and uh, maybe then we can talk about your ideas on who are the uh, top offensive players for the 2020 campaign for the Rays and the the best pitchers you got, and. Uh, talk a little bit about baseball and maybe entertain people that way. So it'd be fun to be able to do that. And know that uh, there's some games right around the corner. Well, let me tell you, I appreciate your time more than uh, you'll ever know. And I appreciate your willingness to, uh, to uh, talk to me. I know the people that listen to these podcasts look forward to hearing your voice and until uh, we do it again, Jamie Uretsky and Dwayne stats saying so long until uh, our next podcast on the lighter side of, Baseball, this is Jamie Reske from Overland Park getting through this COVID-19 as best we can. So stay healthy and everybody get, uh, get ready for some baseball. Baseball.